Well, the good news is um, today I'm going to uh, give you a didactic and detailed exposition of the Trinity so that when you leave here, it will no longer be a mystery to you. <laughs> the bad news is we probably won't be breaking for lunch till around 2 o'clock, but then you'll have to get right back in here. Actually, no, I think that, you know, that's often what happens, right, is we try to explain mystery. I think this is part of the curse of, that we have carried forward from the Enlightenment of having to explain things rather than just live with the idea of mystery. And so I think we need to come at this in a different way, a way that's a little bit deeper than just our heads. Those of us of a certain age um, who also liked Led Zeppelin will remember Larry Norman. He's considered one of the pioneers of Christian rock music and released more than 100 albums during his career. That is remarkable. A lyric from one of his songs I still remember after nearly five decades goes like this. The Beatles said, all you need is love. Then they broke up. <laughs> it's true. Love is the thing we all know we need, and yet it's the thing we struggle so much to get right. We tend to think of it largely in terms of feelings of being in love or of falling in love. But all of us who've lived more than a couple of decades know that feelings far too easily come and go. So that kind of love can't be all we need. It's just too hard to maintain. Real love isn't something you fall in and out of. It's intentional. It has movement. I think of this every time 1 Corinthians 13 is read at a wedding. Lots of couples reflexively go to this beautiful chapter because it's about love. But I don't think many are actually paying attention to what it really says. Because when love is about how you feel and things start getting difficult, when real conflict comes, deep, abiding conflict, as it inevitably does in close relationships, suddenly keeping no record of wrongs and hoping and bearing all things becomes an, an almost impossible weight to bear. The kind of love that's real, the kind of love scripture actually teaches, the love that's higher and deeper and stronger and more resilient than all of our stupid pop songs and fantasy romance novels and rom-coms is impossible to manufacture out of human emotion and ambition. So if it's that important, how do we get it? Most religious people will suggest that love comes from God. But Christianity insists that God himself is love, as John tells us in 1 John 4, 8 and 16. Love isn't God. God is love. But what does that mean for God to be love? It, it doesn't mean that he's simply loving Judaism and Islam and, and Mormonism proclaim a God who loves. But when Christians teach that God is himself love, they're saying that love itself has its origin and essence entirely 
in God. But God is love only makes sense if God is Trinity. A solitary God cannot be love. He, he may yearn for love, maybe even learn to love, but cannot in himself be love because love requires an object. You can't just love in the abstract. It requires relationship. It requires community. In the doctrine of the Trinity, we see how love is part of the very fabric of creation. And it's essential to the eternal need-nothing creator. From eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been in community, in relationship. They have loved each other, and that loving relationship is bound up in the very nature of God himself. The Trinity isn't some weird religious aberration that Christians have stupidly clung to. It's the answer to the deepest longing of the human heart. The Trinity cuts to the heart of history's oldest desire. It plunges us far deeper than sentimental notions and ethereal feelings and elusive emotions. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Sacrificial love is ultimate love. Now imagine that the one who is love sacrificed himself. Imagine that the eternal loving fellowship of the divine community went out of their, went sent out one of their own to die, not just for their friends, but for enemies. Why would this loving fellowship do this? For one reason, to bring even enemies fully into that divine community. And this is precisely what God has done. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, takes on flesh and comes to the earth to die so that he who is love might show love and give love and redeem love by love that we might finally know love. The good news of salvation is ultimately that God opens his Trinitarian life to us. This is the hope of all mankind, what C.S. Lewis called the fusty or old-fashioned doctrine of the Trinity would come to life by swallowing us up into the love of God himself, into the love that God himself has enjoyed since before time began. Lewis, once an ardent atheist, was right when he wrote the thing that matters is being actually drawn into that three personal life. And God reveals that three personal life. I love that phrase from the beginning of scripture. The Old Testament begins with the first verses of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible pointing to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, the creative energetic force of all creation. But these verses also give glimpses of the other two persons of the mystery. 
as they depict the, depict the immense power of the Spirit of God that hovers and broods over darkness and then, and then offer the piercing image of the light of God as the first act of creation after the earth is formed, the light that disrupts the darkness and cannot be overcome by it. As John describes Jesus in John 1.5, Genesis 1 looks into the heart of darkness and sees something truly mysterious and beautiful and hopeful, a, a creative force, a hovering spirit, and a penetrating light that cannot be overcome. And in a highly patterned and repetitive piece of writing, Genesis 2 through Genesis 1, 2 through 25 introduces six stages of God's creating work within God said, let there be. Let there be light was his first command. Then the performance review. And it was good. What's the first thing you do when you finish a project at your house? Step away from it to see it and to say it's good. This is such a sign, an evidence of the image of God in us because that's exactly what God did. But then in verse 26, this pattern is broken. When God determined to create humanity, he said not let there be but let us make. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. This is not the royal we. The term used here for God is Elohim, a, a plural noun, which is used 2,606 times in the Old Testament. You think he's trying to tell us something? So the decision to create women and men is the outcome of a conversation within the Trinity. So from the first page of scripture, very first page, we're given a glimpse of the mystery of the Trinity, one God, but more than one. And you just get a sense that it was their delight to create humanity since they in their performance review declared them very good. By the way, God is the only creature in the universe who's qualified to give his own performance review. The rest of us need other people to really know how we're doing. This idea of delight informs a really beautiful imagining of the Trinity that comes from a guy called Meister Eckhart, a 14th century German Christian mystic. He wrote that God the Father laughed and the Son was born. Then the two of them laughed and the spirit was born. When all three laughed, human beings were born. For Eckhart, the mystery of the Trinity was surrounded by joy and laughter and love and delight at the heart of the universe. And this would seem to be wholeheartedly affirmed by the testimony in Proverbs 8, 22 through 31 of the, the, of the personification of wisdom. She says... God sovereignly made me, the first 
the basic, before he did anything else. I was brought into being a long time ago, well before Earth got its start. I arrived on the scene before ocean, yes, even before springs and rivers and lakes, before mountains were sculpted and hills took shape, I was already there. Newborn, long before God stretched out Earth's horizons and tended to the minute details of soil and weather and set sky firmly in place, I was there when he drew the boundary for the sea and, and then staked out Earth's foundations. I was right there with him, making sure everything fit. Day after day, I was there in joyful play, always enjoying his company, delighted with the world of things and creatures, happily celebrating humanity. How often? Do you imagine God in delightful laughter and joyful play? I bet not often enough. But let's approach this from just a little different perspective and consider an artistic visual depiction of the Trinity, which you have in the back of your bulletin. And I'd just take it out so we can look at it as I'm talking about it. This is one of the most compelling, I think, and it's an icon of the Holy Trinity written by Andrei Rublev, who lived in 14th century Russia and is generally acknowledged as Russia's greatest iconographer. He was born around 1365 near Moscow, and while very young, entered monastic life and later studied iconography. The icon here in your bulletin is a reproduction of Rublev's most famous icon. The original's in pretty bad shape. This reproduction was written by a Roman Catholic monk called Brother Eldridge. Now, I, you probably notice that I say written by him and not painted intentionally. Icons tell stories, and so they're written, not painted. As a result of Rublev's praying through scripture, he began to understand this passage that we read in Genesis 18 today, that the three messengers who visited Abraham and Sarah and announced the future birth of a child to this elderly couple as precursors to the Holy Trinity in the New Testament. The story in the book of Genesis speaks of the oaks at Mamre, and so you see a rendition of an oak tree kind of in the top right center, soaring high, the tent of Abraham and Sarah has been stylized here in the upper left into a mansion. A mountain rises high in the upper right, the mountain on which Moses would receive the law. The three angelic visitors were served a feast, a calf prepared by Sarah and Abraham. And so we see the three angels sitting at a banquet table. Rublev called this icon the hospitality of Abraham. But he also had another name for it, the Holy Trinity. The second interpretation models how we as Christians look back on the Hebrew scriptures with a new eye in light of the revelation we experience in Jesus Christ. 
We see in the New Testament what was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. The three angels are now a depiction of the Holy Trinity. The tree, the oak at Mamre foreshadows the cross. The tent depicted as a mansion is now the dwelling place Jesus has gone to prepare for his followers. The mountain has become the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus shone with the light of God's glory. The meal that's served at this table is now Eucharistic. It's lamb, the lamb of God served in a chaliced ciborium. These three persons all hold staffs of authority. On the left, there is God the Father, the blue garment almost hidden by a translucent ethereal robe. Jesus is depicted at the center, wearing a blue garment, half covering a shimmering robe, depicting his nature in the incarnation as both God and man. The red sash over his right shoulders ascribes kingly power. This is Jesus, the surprising, long-awaited Messiah. Jesus, the innocent, afflicted, saving, healing incarnation of God. Jesus, the Son who embodies God with us. Emmanuel. Then 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus leaves. At least he leaves the earth in bodily form. But in his leaving, he promises not to leave us comfortless. We just read that today. He says, we'll experience even more of what we've seen in him through, the whole, through God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is shown on the right wearing a garment of blue depicting eternity and green depicting new life. This is God the Spirit whom we experience as unifying, sustaining, empowering, reminding, interrupting, convicting, and truth revealing who comes in power at Pentecost and who remains with us today. And as you dwell on this image, you become aware that these three figures seem to be looking deeply into each other with an unqualified dignity, a respectful and loving gaze, three distinct persons, three, yet one. And this I think hints at a couple of striking things. The first one is this, God forever dwells in an intimate community of love, what theologians call perichoresis. The dynamic Trinitarian life centered on communication, relationship, and above all, joy. And since we are created in God's image, the quality of our life is based on our imitation of the interior life of the Trinity. This is why neurotheologian Dr. Jim Wilder says we are made to run on joy like a car runs on gasoline. And I love what Steve Angstrom wrote in this week's emails that one of the ways of describe one way of describing joy is the way we feel when someone is glad to be with us. Thus, the Trinity, who are always glad to be with each other, who always delight with and in each other, becomes the model for joyful human community, most especially for the church, which is Christ's body. It shows how love creates unity out of diversity and rejects any notion of individualism and autonomy. 
being created in the Trinitarian image means we are literally created for loving community. Our expectation in the church ought to be that when we know that, that ought to be that we know and are known by each other, that we experience joy together, that we know the details and desires of each other's lives and hearts, that we love and pray for and care for one another at all times. Number one of four vestry priorities for this year is reconnecting in community after two years of disruption and habitual now isolation. That's why during Lent we had small groups that met together. It's why we will again be having small groups in the fall so that we can be together and share our lives. It's why we are right now in the process of putting names together for joy together, self-organized dinners in July and August. Shameless plug, you can sign up at the welcome table or online. We will put your names together with two others and let you guys work out the details. You are all responsible, intelligent, and creative, probably the most of any people that I know. So it's on you after you write your name down. The other striking thing about this icon is not what's there, but rather what's not there. Years ago, probably more than a decade, Eddie, you might remember this conversation. We were talking about painting a chair. And Eddie, by the way, who's a pretty good painter, taught me about the importance of negative space in a painting, the quote unquote empty space around and between objects and subjects. That just because a space might be bare doesn't mean that it lacks power. In fact, it can evoke mystery and conjure emotions of longing or loss. And when used in this way, negative space helps drive the larger meaning behind a work. And that's precisely the case here. The fourth side of the table is left open intentionally by Rublev, signaling an invitation for the viewer to draw near and even to take a seat at the table and join in this intimate communion. In a profound sense, the divine, or the person viewing this icon completes the image by joining the circle of the sacred three. And you're the fourth guest. God gives us all an invitation to the table to share in the life of God. For some of us, that invitation may be wonderful and immediate, like someone who loves us, greeting us with the words, welcome home, there's a, there's a place for you right here. For others of us, we may find some resistance within ourselves to this welcome by God. The resistance may have to do with our sense of unworthiness to receive God's welcome, to know God's love. And apart from God's grace, there is no health in us. We are unworthy. But we may think there's, we've got too much stuff in our past or maybe in our present, which just became our past. Too many screw-ups, too much brokenness, too much inconsistency for God to actually love us, to delight in and find joy in us. 
But God knows better. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit really does love us. We are, in fact, as it says in Zechariah 2.8, the apple of God's eye. And God's love for us is not ultimately because of us. It, God's love for us is because of God himself. There's, there's no question of worthiness in God's eyes because that's been settled. Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, life, death on the cross, resurrection and, essentials, and ascension covers for us. Jesus puts in the good word, the benediction for us, intercedes for us and saves us. And all we must do is in repentance, receive him by faith. This is what Jesus called being born again. And you must be born again. I hope you'll accept God's invitation to take a seat at the table in this circle of love, welcoming us, literally adoring us, saying, welcome to my table. It's set for you. Come. Henry Nouwen, a well-known 20th century Dutch theologian and author spent hundreds of hours gazing on this icon during a particular time in his life of severe depression. He writes about that journey in his book, Behold the Beauty of the Lord. He says that gradually over many months through this image, he came to know the Trinity as a community of perfect love. In that community, there was no fear, no greed, no anger, no violence, no anxieties, no pain, no suffering, even no words. Only love, enduring love, and deepening trust. It was a community of love, he said, in which he could dwell forever. May that be true of us as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.